Hi guys, welcome to the fifth episode of Slashic Horror. I'm your host, Leroy Cross James, and today I have a special episode lined up for you. Because after all, it's Christmas. So on Instagram this week, I gave you guys a couple of Christmas horror options for me to do this episode on, and it came to a draw between Black Christmas and Silent Night, Deadly Night. So in the end, I decided to just discuss both. Um, Two slasher movies I love for different reasons and from two different eras. Black Christmas coming just before the slasher boom of the late 70s, uh, the 80s, being released in 1974. And Silent Night, Deadly Night coming at the back end of the slasher boom, originally released in 1984. So there's a 10-year gap between these two holiday slashics. Um, What's interesting when you think about that gap, like a whole decade, is how the subgenre progressed within that time period, or arguably regressed and Black Christmas is said to have actually inspired John Carpenter's Halloween so the 1978 classic that started off the slasher craze in the first place and went on to inspire many holiday or occasion themed slasher movies such as My Bloody Valentine, Happy Birthday to Me and of course Silent Night, Deadly Night. And legend has it that John Carpenter was a fan of Black Christmas, and Bob Clark, the director of Black Christmas, told him about an idea he had for a sequel that centred around Halloween. But that's not to say John Carpenter completely ripped off the idea, if, if the story is true. Yes, there's a lot of similarities between Black Christmas and Halloween, and the main one that stands out for me personally is the inspiration of that particular urban legend of the babysitter and the man upstairs. Because both films, they take ideas from it and they use them in completely different ways. And then, of course, there's the point of view shot to the killer, a man silently stalking a group of girls, etc. But, of course, Carpenter's vision is completely different from Clark's and it it never felt like a rip-off. But on the flip side, Silent Night, Deadly Night was made from Halloween's popularity. It was made out out of Halloween's popularity and the subgenre's skyrocketing success with various studios ripping off the idea of the holiday-themed horror flick um, because they were fairly successful at the box office. And as I said earlier, the film came out at the back end of the slasher movie mania where the big ones had become franchises so they were spawning their own sequels. So really it was one of the last slasher movies that came out within that boom the six years after Halloween. Obviously, there were more later down the line, like April Fool's Day in 1986, where they attempted to do something a little bit different, but also the same year Silent Night, Deadly Night was released, along came Wes Craven's A Nightmare on Elm Street, which turned the sub-genre on its head by doing something completely original. And interestingly, both films were actually released on the same day in US theatres. It was the 9th of November, 1984. And Silent Night, Deadly Night briefly outgrossed, um, outgrossed A Nightmare on Elm Street before it was pulled from theatres due to the protests surrounding the film's inclusion of a homicidal Santa Claus. So as a UK resident, it's important that I, I mention that Silent Night, Deadly Night was completely off my radar until I was in my late teens. And that's because the film was never released over here as it, was, it had never been submitted for approval by the BBFC. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm sure the film was pirated through bootleg VHS tapes, DVDs, and was watched online before Arrow Video released it in 2009, but before then I had no knowledge that it even existed. So when I went down the rabbit hole of looking up slash movies and their history on the internet, 
And that was all thanks to a, a certain website called Hysteria Lives, which, if you're a slasher movie fanatic like me, I'm sure it was your Bible for slasher reviews back in the day. The website's still going to this day as well, and I would advise anyone who wants to sink their teeth into a bit more slasher history, go and visit that website. You, you Honestly, you won't be sorry. The, crea- uh, the creator of the site also released a coffee table book um, called The Teenage Slasher Movie Uncut. Uh, by K- uh, J.A. Kirschwell. I actually have the first edition of the book, and it's it's absolutely it's a brilliant collection of write-ups on different areas of the slasher, of slasher period, slasher cinema, with amazing images, quads, posters, international art, all from the author's personal collection, I believe. So I can't recommend that book enough. But the first time I ever saw any footage from Silent Night, Deadly Night was when I watched the 2006 documentary Going to Pieces, the rise and fall of the slasher film. So of course I was intrigued by the film and all the controversy surrounding it. And it only made me want to watch it more. It, it wasn't long after that that Arrow Video ended up releasing the movie anyway. And then I, of course I finally saw it. And honestly my original uh, initial reaction was, mm, it was okay. Which is my reaction to most things I watch for the first time. If I get myself hyped up on them, and I've I've, I've seen the movie many times since, and I've come to really like it for what it is, I I think one thing that took me out of the film uh, when I originally watched it is that the footage that was cut was inserted back into the print. But these scenes, uh, they're like a low VHS quality, which nowadays does, does not bother me at all. I'm all for seeing things in their intended or in authentic presentation. But, of course, a lot of, a lot of it was the gore and the penetration of sharp objects going into the skin, which is probably why it was cut out in the first place. The film in general, though, it, it does have this exploitation quality to it overall that really plays up to the, the violence, the gore, the sexual content. And I would go as far as to say that it, it's quite sleazy in several scenes, which, going back to how minimal, mostly bloodless, and contained Black Christmas was, and then Halloween after that, it shows how slasher film evolved in that space of time and really amped up to the tropes and elements that and the stereotypes that people expected of those sorts of films but also silent night deadly night doesn't really follow the standard formula of most slasher movies from the period it's more of a character study on the killer billy like the movie starts out with him witnessing his parents being brutally murdered by a criminal dressed as Santa claus and then Afterwards, Billy and his little brother Ricky are sent to an orphanage ran by the ruthless Mother Superior. If seeing his parents being killed wasn't bad enough, the abuse he receives from Mother Superior, who believes punishment is good, (laughs) is just nuts. She forces Billy to sit on Santa's lap, ties him to his bed when he has night terrors, and smacks his backside with a strap to stop him from being naughty. So... Apparently the cast and crew were expecting there to be a bit more backlash about the film's portrayal of the Catholic religion and children and, and ch- surrounding children than they were of A Killer Santa Claus. I mean, Silent Night, Deadly Night wasn't the first movie to, to have A Killer Santa Claus. There was Christmas Evil in 1980 and in the 1972 film Tales from the Crypt, there's a segment called And All Through the House, which starred Joan Collins. And in that, she plays a woman who murders her husband on Christmas Eve. And here's a broadcast that there's a maniac on the loose. And he ends up coming to her house dressed as Santa Claus and tries to kill her, which 
she uses to her advantage so she can blame her husband's death on Santa, which is just crazy. The segment was also remade for the TV series of uh, Tales from the Crypt in 1989 with Mary Ellen Trainer, who played Mrs. Walsh in The Goonies. And it's also, pers- personally, it's my favourite episode, and I think it's much better than the film version. So it wasn't like this movie was a completely new idea anyway. It had been done before, but I think with the TV ads, the posters, the hype of the slasher boom, and just the general marketing around it, the attention caught on it, this is probably why it caused so much controversy. And rather than focusing on any particular group of characters, the rest of the film's plot centres on an 18-year-old Billy getting a job at a toy store. I also have to mention how much I love the introduction of an 18-year-old Billy. It's it's this shot from like the crotch up of this high-waisted denim rolled-up chambray shirt wearing blonde, huge bicep hunk who looks... Like, he's just about to do a poor movie, to be honest. And that's that's no disrespect to Robert Brian Wilson. I absolutely love his portrayal of Billy, and I think he was perfectly cast. And that's what makes this the soap, like, montage that happens after with Happy Music, where he's being helpful around the toy store, really cheesy and cute and adorable. But it all goes downhill when they need him to dress up as Santa for their grotto, and he has to wear the suit, obviously, which is a trigger. And I mean, what a coincidence, like, wearing the suit and seeing one of, seeing seeing how, like, that just spirals into him going off the rails. It's just, it's poor Billy. Um, and then he sees one of his colleagues um, about to get sexually assaulted, which triggers his memories of his parents being murdered um, and all the cruel words of, of punishment from Mother Superior. And Billy fully fucking snaps. And just kills all of his colleagues at the toy store. So after this, we he just goes on like a killing spree through the night where we see some of my favourite kills in any slasher film. Um, especially when he chases a topless babysitter played by screen queen and horror legend Linnea Quigley. And he impales her on a pair of deer antlers. That's probably one of the scenes that this film is most remembered for. And then after that, we also see him decapitate a bully while he's slaying down a hill which is, it's actually quite a funny scene because it's just the way that uh, the other bully screams while it happens. So I suppose this is another thing about the quality of the film. It, in terms of the kills, it became more about about the kills and the violence than it did about any of the characters other than those set out from the beginning. So Billy, Mother Superior, and Sister Mary, who wants to help him overcome his fears with compassion and understanding. So... Most of the cast are there just to become slasher fodder. It was more about shocks than story in this case, which is where the argument of a regressive quality to the slasher subgenre comes comes in, to be honest. So the movie ends with Billy going after Mother Superior, who is now wheelchair-bound and is getting the kids ready to meet Santa Claus. And she also seems a lot softer than the woman we meet at the, at the start of the movie, where... She just disapproved of the kids enjoying their presents on Christmas Day, whereas in the climax, she looks at them all with, like, joy and happiness. Um, So while this is going on, Sister Mary's told the police about Billy going on a killing spree after finding the staff dead at the toy store. And they go straight to the orphanage to protect Mother Superior and the kids, where the, the police see Santa approaching, and they gun him down in front of all the kids. And it's not Billy. 
yeah, awkward. Also, it makes her, makes me laugh how the kids just aren't particularly arsed that they've just seen Santa Claus get gunned down in front of them. Uh, and Mother Superior's solution to the problem is to take their mind off it by singing Christmas carols. I mean, seriously. Like, that's just, that's just, yeah. Billy does eventually come to the orphanage and attempts to kill Mother Superior before he's gunned down in front of the kids, who again just don't seem particularly arsed. Uh, telling them that they're all safe from Santa before he dies. Oh, poor Billy. Then we get the final shot of Billy's axe at the feet of his brother Ricky, who scowls at Mother Superior and says, Naughty. So, setting the film up, it sets the film up for an amazing sequel, I'm sure, right? We're going to get an amazing sequel from this, guys. I can just, I can just feel it. Well, actually, no. Well, that's a story for another day. Garbage day, if you catch my reference there. But yeah, the sequel is uh, fucking wild. So, the film also spawned a really loose remake in 2012 called Silent Night. And that pays a few homages to the original and the sequel. And in that one, the killer wears a Santa mask, but the story is completely different. It's probably more of a standalone film than a remake, to be honest. And in my opinion, um, I, I just think that if you if you were to take take away the, the title of it and all the references, it could be its own movie. And to be honest, I think as, as a standalone, it just works better. I mean, it stars Malcolm McDowell and Jamie King as well, who I love, and it, it's quite a fun film, so, yeah. And if you're in the UK, you can watch Silent Night, Deadly Night Parts 1 and 2 and the remake on Shudder at the moment, and I'm sure that'll get you into the holiday spirit, so go and check those films out before the big day. So while Silent Night, Deadly Night relied on violence, sex and gore, ten years before... Black Christmas relied on the atmosphere and the claustrophobic environment of the sorority house. Bob Clark himself, he actually didn't consider Black Christmas to be a slasher film. He considered it to be more of a psychological horror or thriller. And I mean, what I love about the movie is is how creepy and eerie it feels. Like, the explicit phone calls from the killer, who calls himself Billy as well, by the way, coincidentally, uh, are weird, uncomfortable, and just downright freaky. And the original title for Black Christmas was Silent Night, Evil Night as well. So if you want to compare the two, um, obviously Silent uh, Black Christmas originally had that Silent Night play, like on the twist on the Christmas Carol in its title. So the opening scene of Black Christmas, I think it's one of the best openings to a slasher movie in general, especially when Claire, one of the sorority girls, goes upstairs and she's suffocated by the killer in her closet before she's dragged up to the attic to sit by the window for the duration of the film and no one knows that she's there. And what also interests me is that they've been getting these phone calls before the film's even started, so the film sort of starts in media res. So I've always wondered why the killer targets the sorority house and enters the house that night. I love the ambiguity of it and how it's just left up to the audience to decide, but it makes me wonder what what the story is there, like what, what happened before the film starts. I also like how the, the film, in the first 10 minutes, it, it throws us off by focusing on Margot Kidder's Barb. So every time I watch it, I always forget how little Margot Kidder's actually in the movie because we get quite a lot of her in the first 30 minutes or so, and... It, including some backstory about how her mother doesn't want her to come home for Christmas, which 
causes her to stay behind for the holidays and she just gets absolutely shit-faced and when Claire's dad comes to pick pick her up, pick Claire up and she doesn't meet him because obviously she's dead and sitting in the attic, <laughs> um, they go to the police who are completely fucking useless in this film and Bob goes on a drunken rant about how, how everyone's probably blaming her um, for winding Claire up about the cause. And then after that, she's barely seen at all, but I feel like she has this presence at the start of the film where you would expect her to, to be the sole focus of, of the movie, but that's obviously not the case because the focus shifts over to Jess, who's played by Olivia Hussey, who is absolutely brilliant. Um, I love Jess and I, I love Olivia as an actress, especially in Psycho 4, where she played Norma Bates, um, young Norma Bates. And Jess, uh, Jess's backstory intrigues me as well because even though both Barb and Olivia have said um, that they weren't trying to make any political or feminist narrative with Jess because it turns out she's pregnant and she decides she wants to get an abortion, the backstory was it was simply created just to give her just to give her that just to give her something about her character and to also make us think that. Peter, her boyfriend, who um, is due to, who wants to be a concert pianist, um, and he ends up failing his audition because he's distracted by the fact that he's going to be a father. And it's there to make us think that Peter could be the killer. But it turns out that Peter's just a misogynistic wanker who thinks he can make all the Jess's dreams come true by not asking her to marry him. So they can raise a family together, but by telling her they are going to get married and she would be sorry if she got an abortion. Yeah, Peter's an absolute dick. And she she sticks to her guns anyway, and she says she wants a career, she wants to live a life, and you know what? Too right, good for her, and we love we love Jess. Intentional or not, like with all the political uh, narrative of that. I love Jess just for that alone because, you know what, too, too right she should have a career and live a life and not be told by a man what she's going to do. So while all this is going on, Billy stalks the girls and their house mother, Mrs. Mack, who is an amazing character, that for some reason <laughs> hides her bottles of booze all over the house. I mean, why she doesn't just keep them in a room in one safe place, I don't know, but she's iconic either way. And you know what? It's only recently that I noticed that while some of the characters are talking, you can actually see Billy's shadow in the background on some scenes. And I don't know how I've never noticed it before, um, but it just, I don't know, I, I think it adds to the creepiness of the film. And it's another tactic that Carpenter probably got picked up on and got inspired by with Michael when he lingers in the background of certain shots. So, but unfortunately, Mrs. Mack ends up getting killed off. And when the police finally pull the finger out of their arse, they call for a search party to find Claire. And there's another missing girl who they end up finding dead in the snow. And I've always wondered, though, whether it was Billy that killed her or... I, I mean, I guess as an audience, we're, we're supposed to assume that. Or I don't know if it's just there to put the girls on edge and make the police actually take their reports of the threatening phone call seriously, because they eventually tap the sorority house's uh, phone line. So, while Jess listens to some carolers outside, uh, Billy creeps into Barb's room, and because she's, obviously, she's she's 
drunk and she's gone to sleep, she's gone to bed early, which is why she's not in most of the film. And Billy stabs her to death with this like unicorn ornament, which it's just an iconic piece of, piece of imagery in the film. And he later kills uh, another sorority sister called Phil. But the phone calls start up again and Jess answers the phone to listen where Billy repeats on the phone calls in a really creepy way her conversation with Peter about the abortion. Um, you know, saying it just, just like it's just like getting a wart removed and it makes her think that it could be Peter. However, the best scene in the movie is when she's told, surprise, surprise, that the calls are coming from inside the house. Now, this scene is one of my all-time favourite moments in any horror film. And it's not necessarily that she's been told that the calls are coming from inside the house. It's the way that Jess hesitates between the front door and going upstairs when she calls out for Barb and Phil. And then it gets to the point where she's just full on screaming their names, begging for them to answer her. It gives me chills every single time I watch it. I just think it's a brilliant scene. And I think it's so realistic to what someone would actually do in that scenario, being torn between getting out and checking to see if your friends are okay slash alive. But unfortunately, Phil and Barb are, are dead. And we, when Jess does go upstairs, we see Billy looking down at Jess through the crack in the door. And there's that really creepy scene with his eye. And there's there's always a little bit, I've seen a bit of criticism about the way that Jess reacts to that. Like, she just, she stares back at him um, while he's looking down at her. But, like, the way that she's stunned, again, I think that's quite realistic. Like, she just, just what would you do if you just saw two of your friends dead? And then there's a person looking down at you behind the crack of a door. I think I would be stunned as well. Um, but I just, yeah, I think it's just, it's brilliant. So after this, Billy chases Jess um, down to the basement where Peter reappears from nowhere and he breaks into the house by smashing the glass on one of the windows. But Jess convinces herself that it's him who is the killer when the police arrive and um, they they hear Jess screaming and they, they find Peter dead and they find Jess unconscious. And the last scene debates whether Jess killed Peter or whether someone else did. I personally think that Billy killed Peter and then just scarped back up to the attic when the police arrived. I, I don't think Jess killed Peter. But what infuriates me and infuriates me about the last scene isn't the ambiguity of Jess's fate when we see the hatch door open in the attic because she's left alone. But that's it. It's the fact that everyone leaves Jess alone in this house where there have been at least two murders that the police know about, not counting the fact Mrs. Mac and Claire are still in the attic. But the movie ends with a shot of Claire's plastic-covered face out the window while the telephone rings and the policeman lingers outside. I mean, it, it's dark, really dark. I mean, Merry Bloody Christmas, guys. But And it's, it, it's a brilliant ending, but I just don't think they would leave Jess alone in that house, personally. I mean, I, I, I just don't, yeah. That's the only thing that annoys me a little bit about the, the, the end of the film. I love the ending, but it's the practicality behind it. I just don't believe they would leave her alone in that house. But in my mind, Jess survives 
but I think realistically, I'm sure Billy probably did get her in the end. And it's it's a shame they never did a sequel to this. Um, I mean, it probably I mean it wasn't needed, but instead they did do a remake in 2006, which pretty much it shits all over the original by taking a comedic approach to the material, and. It's a complete contrast to what the original was actually about. Like, it doesn't have that same atmosphere about it. I mean, as a standalone, I like the 2006 remake. But as a remake to Black Christmas, it's fucking terrible. And I'm still yet to see the second remake, which came out in 2019. And I must must admit, I'm a bit apprehensive about watching it from what I've heard. But... I'm planning to get around to watching that now that it's on Netflix. So just to round off the the rest of the episode, instead of asking a question about the films on Instagram this week, I gave you guys the option to ask me some horror questions instead. So the first question I have is from Rich, and he said, do you have a favourite final character, the one that survives? I love how we're being inclusive there. Love that, Rich. Um, I do... But it's for various reasons. I, I don't have a specific favourite final character. For me, I love Nancy in A Nightmare on Elm Street because of the whole, the whole Home Alone sequence, as uh, horror fans have come to call it over the years. Um, I've, and also the fact she turns her back on Freddy. I just I think she's probably one of the best final characters that we do have. I love uh, Alice from Friday the 13th, the way that she just full-on runs over to Mrs. Voorhees and just takes her head off. But also, as well, moving away from the, the slasher subgenre a little bit, I really love Susie from Suspiria, and I just think that that whole film um, is beautiful, and that she really, she is the present, the whole presence around that film. She's, uh, she's probably one of my favourite horror characters, actually. Um, what else do we have? So Jason asked, what type of killer would you be? I can't tell if you're asking me about killing methods, like what my killing methods would be, or in terms of like a horror villain. I guess I would probably, if if, if we're going down that route, I guess I would probably be like Billy Loomis from Scream, and um, I'm Stu from Scream, because... Obviously, I'm obsessed with horror, so if I was going to become a killer, that seems like the realistic path that I would take. Um, I'm going to move on before people think that I'm absolutely crazy and before I probably get arrested for confessing that. But, yeah, anyway, but this is all just fantasy, guys. Um, You know, I'm not actually going to do that. Um, So Shelley, hi Shelley, from Tales from Point Horror Book Club asked... (laughs) Snog, marry, avoid, Myers, Jason, Kruger. <laughs> I love how we're playing the PG version here, uh, rather than the naughty version. I'd probably snog Michael, um, just because out of all three, he's probably the most attractive with a rubber mask that doesn't look like anything. Oh, I guess it looks like William Shatner. Okay, maybe I might have to rethink that one. We'll just go with Michael for snog. I'd marry Jason because, you know, obviously, Jason's my boy. And I'd avoid Freddy because I don't need anyone stalking my dreams. Like, that's just, yeah, that, that that's my personal time. I don't need anyone stalking me inside my dreams. That was a really good question, Shelley. I love that one. 
So the next one we have is from Dustin, from Dustin Can Read. And um, he said, what's your favourite type of horror? Example, gore, psychological, torture porn, classic. Well, I think, yeah, I think Slasher is my my niche. Like, I, that's the one that I know the most about. It's one that I obsessed over for so many years. So Slasher is probably my favourite subgenre but I also quite like I do quite like psychological um horror films as well. Um the one the one subgenre that I'm pro is probably my weakest subgenre for me personally is um paranormal which is is funny because that's my husband's favourite subgenre in horror and when we're often watching a film or about to watch a film he'll want to watch something with that sort of element to it, whereas I want to watch something with Slasher in it, or... So, yeah, it just... Yeah, it's it's just... I don't know, I, I, lo I do love paranormal films, I do, but, yeah, for me personally, Slasher's always been the top one for me. Um, and the next question that I have is from Stephen. Um... He said, have you seen Hell House LLC? So speaking of, I guess, paranormal. Um, I have. I I thought it was okay. Um, it wasn't my favourite. But I I must admit as well, found footage films, other than the odd one, I'm a bit 50-50 on. I mean, I love the Blair Witch Project, but I don't know. Maybe it's just, yeah. I'm probably not selling myself as much of a horror fan here, but... I just, yeah, for me, the found footage films, I feel like they are just, they're, they're so overdone. But then again, that can be said about any subgenre, so. But no, it was, a, it was a good film. It was all right, yeah. And uh, I think I've seen the sequels as well, actually, because I'm sure I watched them all on Shudder. Um, and then the next question I've got is from Brooke Ahara. Do you like your horror movie villains with or without a mask? For me, it's just more about the atmosphere around the film. So I don't mind what the killer's like per se. I mean, I do like a masked killer. I think, I think obviously being a fan of slasher films like that just comes with with the territory. But I also like giallos as well, Italian giallos, where we just see a pair of black gloves throughout most of those films. So it for me, it doesn't necessarily matter too much, but. If I had a choice, yeah, why not? Let's just, just throw a, a Halloween mask on, on somebody. And that's me done. That's me happy. Um, and the last question I have is from uh, Sam. Still reading Sam. He said favourite slasher villain. So anyone who does know me personally knows that Friday the 13th, like I love that franchise. So I would say Jason for... In terms of like the look and um, the whole like camp summer camp atmosphere, but in terms of who I think is probably the best for me, it's probably Michael Myers. Um, I think Michael Myers is probably the best slasher villain out there. Personally, people might disagree, but then again, as well, I like Angela from Sleepaway Camp. Um, I think that whole film is just the way it's set up is brilliant. Um, but yeah, it just depends really. Um, but yeah, I'll go. I'll say. I'll say Jason for in terms of look, and Michael in terms of who I think is the best. 
Right, guys, so that's the end of the episode. Um, I hope you all enjoyed my, my little commentary on Black Christmas and Silent Night, Deadly Night, and I hope it's got you in the mood for the uh, for the big day. Um, and while I'm here, I just want to say not only a thank you, but a big Merry Christmas to everyone who's listened so far to this podcast, and I hope that you've all enjoyed it. Um, and I can't wait to do more episodes uh, going into the new year as well. So... Thank you so much to everyone uh, for listening, supporting me, everyone who's helped me build up this podcast, and um, I hope you all have a merry bloody Christmas. Thanks, guys, and I'll see you on the next episode of Slashic Horror.